Over the past few weeks, our lives have quickly changed in profound ways. We continue to be committed to care for our patients, provide education for our trainees, and support our family and friends. This special podcast series during the COVID-19 pandemic will bring you perspectives from our otolaryngology community on what is going on in real time. I'm your host, Christina Cabrera-Muffley. All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely my own or my guests and do not express the views or opinions of my employer. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it and leave a review. This is episode four in the Mentor Pandemic Special Series. This was recorded on April 8th, 2020 with Dr. Evelyn Kaliusef. She is an associate professor at the Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School and serves as the program director for the Otolaryngology Residency Program there. Thanks for being on the show, Evelyn. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So I wanted to ask you, you're in New Jersey, so things are a little different there than I'm sure in Colorado. I'm sure you're hearing lots of things coming out of New York too, close by. How is the pandemic affecting you personally on a day-to-day basis right now? How it completely turned my life as I used to know it on its head. So we closed our offices. We stopped seeing patients probably three weeks ago now. I haven't operated in three weeks. And we just started doing telehealth. And so that's been a very unique experience. I know internal medicine and other fields, I think they had always been doing it at some level. But for us as a department, we've never actually done it before. And so we kind of scrambled to kind of put together two leaders within our department to really lead the movement and um, getting an account, getting everything set up. And it's just been such a weird experience. You know, I really enjoy seeing my patients and talking to them. And it's very hard. You know, some patients are great and you kind of miss them and you want to see them and all you can, you know, so it's nice to kind of still be able to reach out to them. And then their experience has been very strange. You know, people like talking to you from their car or grocery shopping, or like I've had a few from their bed, like they haven't even bothered to get out of bed. It's been an odd um, experience. Very, very different. If you had told me that this is what my life would look like three months ago, I wouldn't have believed you. I can definitely appreciate that. I've been doing telehealth too. You just can't examine people (laughs) for telehealth, especially in our field. I mean, it's tricky. We are opening our office for like post-op patients. I had one done last last month. He kind of, he was so cute. He kind of get his phone up close enough to show me. It was a new patient to show me his tongue. And clearly there was something going on. So I brought him in and, you know, I suspect that he has the same sarcoma. And so I did buy him in the office. Like, what do I do now? You know, our governor just extended our state of emergency for another 30 days. And that's putting us at kind of early May. And all five of the hospitals that I have privileges at haven't given us clear or even kind of an end date for when we can start considering operating on elective cases. So, you know, I have real worries about what am I going to do with patients that really need surgery, you know, and have real non-COVID life is going on. It's not just COVID. Our head and neck surgeons and our airway surgeons are still operating. So, you know, I don't think anyone would fault you for taking somebody with a known squamous cell to the OR at this point. The problem is that at this point, things have gotten so bad that there are no cases that are allowed. The OR is turned into an ICU. There are a lot of patients there on the vent. And so for conservation of PPE, for conservation of a vent, for nursing care and things like that, they really can't sustain it. And so especially for a large head and neck cancer case, you know, deferring to adjuvant chemo and radiation, we're trying to find other ways. I think that that's okay for some things like oral pharynx and laryngeal, but for oral cavity, it's a little concerning. And it's 
continuous discussions with our chair and things are constantly changing. So we'll see, maybe, maybe things will look better in two weeks and I, and we'll have more information, but I don't know. Yeah, that's a whole nother level because we're still doing those cases and transplants and things like that for other services. The only things that are going on are unstable patients. There's been a few patients where, you know, our service has had to take them for sinusitis with intracranial intraorbital complications, but those patients had to get COVID testing before even. And with that, the hospital is trying to accommodate us, for, but they're really limiting it to only acute and unstable patients. Any sort of chronic conditions they're deferring and yeah. cancer is falling into that category. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty scary. So besides the patient care issue, which is clearly one of the things that we are most concerned about, what else is worrying you about the pandemic? Kind of multiple things. I feel like we're in the middle of a war and I relate more to a lot of my friends that have lived through political unrest abroad internationally. And it's very similar. You don't know sort of when the next, you know, when the shoe's going to drop, when the next sort of bomb or, or explosion is going to happen, when the next change. And so for us, I guess, multiple parts of my life, I think, you know, I'm a program director and we, um, we have 17 residents and sort of slowly all five of our sites have called stage three CGME pandemic level and having to decide how we're going to deploy them and keep them safe and have them supervised and still be an educational experience and still be able to provide good patient care and still have them be okay and okay, like emotionally and okay from a training perspective. And so I think that is probably on the forefront of my mind every day. You know, I talk to the residents almost every day for the majority of them done like a noon conference set up within our own program just to kind of touch base with them as well. But like I talked to probably six or seven different of residents of my 17 every single day. And so I worry about the residents and what's going to happen. You know, my chiefs are prepared, you know, that I, I can graduate them today, but it's really what are going to be the long-term effects for my PGY twos and threes and fours. And am I going to be able to make up this time? What is my OR? Like on a clinical level, am I going to have any patients left? What am I going to do in three or four months? Am I going to have a practice? Will I know how to operate? <laughs> Will I have any patients for them to like learn? I know from when I take vacation, there's always like a downstream effect. If I take a week off, my practice is a little bit slower in four or five weeks because it's kind of a downstream effect. And I don't know what this is going to have on my personal clinical the fact that, you know, I'm very lucky I get a base salary from the university, but what about my friends who are in private practice and don't have that? And then sort of long-term effects on my friends and family. Like I haven't, you know, I haven't seen my mother in three or four weeks and I have a very large family that I'm very close to and uh, haven't seen them. Like you can Zoom and, <laughs> and FaceTime all you want, but like a hug is a hug. It's not the same. It's not the same. Every part of my life has been affected. Yeah, as a fellow program director, I completely agree with you. That is a huge stressor, is making sure that they're okay, what's going to happen when we're when they're reassigned, if they're reassigned. We just went to stage three on Friday. Our projections aren't looking as bad as other places around the country, so I'm crossing my fingers and hoping that we're not going to even have to reassign them, but it's, it's always the... Forefront, and they're also feeling 
the distance from their families more. And a lot of my residents are not from the tri-state area, so their families are often either way out of state and need, they need to catch a flight home, or it's a two-hour drive. And you know, a lot of them are single and alone in, the, in their apartments. And it's hard because I can't even have them over for dinner because we're supposed to be self-isolating. But And it's hard because they're on the front lines, really. And it's, it's actually also kind of a stressor for me because, you know, I volunteered and no one seems to want. <laughs> right now, our, our facilities have a lot of support in terms of faculty support. And a lot of people in the internal medicine, anesthesia, and like pulmonary critical care and dental surgery have actually come out of retirement and helped out or have volunteered. And so they have a plethora of faculty members. What they need is workers, you know, boots on the ground and they need residents. And so even though I've volunteered and a couple of our faculty members are really volunteering, they don't want us. You know, our general surgery program director jokingly said, she's like, no, I love you all and thanks, but um, I really just want your intern. Right, because they're closest to it. But it's so hard for me to make that phone call and say, you know, I need you to cover the shift tonight in the ICU in a COVID positive unit and watch over where half of them are going to die. And I'm calling them from the comfort of my apartment. It's a little heartbreaking and they're great. I mean, my residents, I'm very, very lucky. I think I, I'm sure every program director feels that way, but I'm very lucky. My residents are, are great and they've been excellent and everyone's wanted to help and, and they're really filling in for each other and, you know, obviously we've had some residents that have been sick or PUIs or positive or not. And so everyone's filled in, everyone's willing to kind of cover for the other person. It's been really sweet. Some of the single residents that don't have any any children or anything have like volunteered on behalf of the other resident. Oh, no, no, don't send him. I'll cover his shift. And so it's really sweet. I think it brings times like this bring out the best in people and sometimes the worst. But the one bright side, I think, in, in all of that on the residency side, it really brought the residents together, brought me closer to them and them closer to me, I think, if that's possible. But it's yeah. a stress, you know, that's probably more than anything else. Yeah, because I feel like, and this isn't meant in a derogatory way in any way, but I feel like the residents are my other children. I mean, they're adults, but it's like that higher level of responsibility for other people. Yeah, I don't have children, but I have huge family and I totally can relate and they definitely feel the closest to children that that I've ever and I worry and you know when I went to the grocery store and like the shelves are empty I like called a few of them was like do you guys need anything because I I thought like if I'm struggling to find groceries they must be as well right it, it definitely is a stressor it's you know and I think in some ways too I'm going to have some sort of practice, right? Well, like I'll just rebuild my practice. I'll get new patients. Eventually in a year, everyone hopefully will have forgotten about this and it will have come back to, to normal life. And I won't have any worries about my own training and my own capabilities. But I know that they think about that. And they think about yeah. how valuable this five years is. And, you know, I worry for them and I don't have any answers. Right. Like what you said before about your chiefs, being ready. I agree. My three chiefs are ready. I have no concerns about them going out into independent practice, but what about the fourth years the most? I mean, right. Cause they don't have as much time to make up. And is this also going to affect, um, like you said, once all the onslaught of patients comes back, are we going to be so busy? Is this going to be like after you take a vacation or is this going to be so busy that you can't afford to take the extra 30 minutes to teach the resident how to do it? That's my concern. You know, we're talking internally that 
and I've told the resident I'm willing to operate seven days a week after after my office hours on a Saturday on a Sunday. Like I will make up this time for you guys. My obviously my focus is going to be on the on the residents that have less time. So like you said, this is the fourth years. But will that be taking away from my twos and my threes? That would that would have been an educational opportunity for them. So am I just driving from Peter to pay Paul? Am I going to have to deal with the effects of this for the foreseeable two or three years? And I have a feeling the answer is yes. And it's scary. That makes a lot of sense. I don't know that I thought quite that long term yet. (laughs) This is what keeps me up at night because I think, oh God, like, yeah, okay. When we closed our OR, I said to the residents, oh, okay, April 15th, you know, we we shut everything down probably March 16th. And so we said, oh yeah, April 15th, that's a month, four weeks. We'll peak and we'll be over it. And it's like, what, April 8th? And there's no end in sight. And yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any concerns about long-term financial implications though for your department or affecting the residency or? Definitely. At Rutgers University, we have like a, a, we get a base salary and then there is some sort of compensation plan similar to private practice, but not similar. And so there obviously is because we have some junior faculty that uh, came in on guarantee and and are on the same front. So you have to sort of cover them. And we have a large staff to support our large faculty and obviously closing the office for four weeks, closing the OR for four weeks has huge financial implications. And then how to restart things when we're finally open. Obviously we're not going to be able to restart, you know, at full force, especially if some of our staff are furloughed, like what are we going to do? You know, and a lot of patients may not want to come even, even if, but they may have concerns about, especially coming to an academic center that is a known COVID positive hospital at a major site, which, you know, we have four major affiliates. And so I have real concerns about even if when we're back close to normal, what is that going to look like in terms of our financial health? And we often academics don't want to talk about the finances, but it's important to support all of our other missions. I don't know. I mean, luckily I'm just the program director, not the chair. (laughs) And I'm very good chair, so I'm very lucky, but uh, those are really difficult decisions. And also, we have a great group of private practitioners that really support, and actually our residents learn probably more from them than necessarily from from us. And they're a huge, important part of their education for all five years. Their practices are taking a hit, and I can't imagine what sort of decisions they're making. And, you know, going forward, if you think about it, we've had discussions about, like, what, when the OR does open, will they respect block time? And for a lot of things, we may be shifting, actually, I imagine in private practice, they may be shifting some of their easier cases off-site to surgery centers where my residents won't go right? because they can get the time and they can address the backlog of their patients quicker. And so as much as we sort of want to ignore that, I think that those are real things that will affect training and education. And so I'm very concerned. Yeah, me too. It's like listening to myself talk to my husband (laughs) about all these issues. (laughs) (laughs) it's funny because that's different as I guess initially if you had asked me like a year ago I'd be like oh no my practice is very different than someone practicing in California or Colorado or Oregon or you know the UK and and talking to people now in this crisis it's kind of leveled all of us like we're all in the same playing field and we're all we all have the same issues and the same problems the severity I mean we have 45,000 cases here in New Jersey you know clearly it's very different than other states 
told the, the emotional effects are a little different, kind of the acuity may be different, but it's all the same problems. Right. Yeah. And it's not something like, you know, a hurricane Sandy or something like that, where it's one area of the country, but other people can come from other areas and really help. Everybody's in the same boat all over. And so there's less of that, you know, there's less of the outpouring of support and there's just such a, it's just a larger scale. Yeah. Yeah. What are you doing to stay sane? I think that's hitting me more this week. I think the first two weeks of my isolation or quarantine, I guess, the first two weeks were spent with hours of teleconferencing and telehealth and just kind of trying to sort things out. And this week is a bit of a lull where reality is sinking in and I'm feeling more drained. But I'm at home and like you can't go to the gym and you can't have dinner with friends and so my apartment is spotless. I, <laughs> I mean, I've always, it's always been clean, but clean in every room at least twice a week. Uh, I've taken on baking, apparently. I'd only use my oven to reheat things. And now I bake and then anytime I go in, in the office, it's like a ghost town, but whoever wants to eat with me so that I don't pack on the pounds. I'm reading, FaceTiming, kind of just talking to friends. So I think maybe next week I'll have to get into more of a regimented routine of exercise and reading. You know, it's funny because I have a long list of like to do and I always would say, oh, if I had the time, I, I would do this and I would do this. But I have found that I'm not as productive. You know, there's like countless list of manuscripts that I have to probably review or resubmit or clean up. I haven't even looked at them. And I think that it just, well, the first two weeks really is my mind has been distracted and so focused on just kind of finding a way through the chaos. And now that the chaos is here to stay, I think I have to find a better way to stay sane because I can't cook and clean that much. <laughs> yeah. When you've been in that kind of crisis mode for a while yeah. and you're doing all these meetings and making sure that everybody's good and it just, it's hard for me to focus on the higher level thinking right now just because of the stress. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I've had friends that, um, you know, send me lists of like things to binge watch, but, but I'm not really a TV movie for like, I'll, you know, I'm good for like two hours and then I'm like, and then I'm restless. I'm like, oh gosh, you know, there are a lot of hours in a day. It's hard. I don't know. Any suggestions in my way? <laughs> well, I'm actually working on a 9,000 piece puzzle. So when I am not trying to homeschool my kids, which is a whole nother nightmare, that's what I'm doing. And that is a lot easier to focus on just because you get kind of in the groove of it. Uh, and so I'm making a lot more progress more quickly than I thought I would on this large puzzle. <laughs> Maybe I'm going to like order one on Amazon. Yeah, it's very relaxing to put it together because it's like a very tangible way to create order out of chaos that mm. we can't otherwise control. Oh, well, that, that's a good idea. And it's something with your hands. I find that, you know, idle hands, idle mind. Like, and so if, as long as I'm staying busy and we're not cooking or cleaning or, you know, typing, it helps get the anxiety out. Yeah. It's my mind off things. Yeah. And you can't check uh, the news cycle when you're doing a puzzle because you just can't. So it keeps you away from that. <laughs> or the pandemic prediction tools that I'm checking like obsessively multiple yeah. times a day. Right. I was doing that the first two weeks and this week I just, like I said, I think it just settled in as this is going to be my reality. 
So I will just read New York Times or like check or NewJersey.com like once in the evening just to kind of get a sense of like, are we plateauing? And hopefully it looks like, you know, looking at our, our different sites, hopefully we're starting to plateau uh, the last two or three days. But information overload definitely the first two weeks. And I don't, I don't think it was as productive. I thought I was helping reading all those COVID guidelines. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting that you're not being called to help either. Uh, I mean, I'm not being called to help right now. It's like, oh yeah, whatever you can intubate, but that's about it. You don't have any other skills. And so, but it's interesting because I would have expected that with your hospitals being busier and cases there, it would be all hands on deck. It brings out sort of, if you have really good leader, it's organized chaos. And so at some of the different sites, you know, our one site, Hackensack, was in Bergen County. It's in North Jersey. It's a like close proximity to New York. And they actually got hit two weeks ahead of the, all the other hospitals. And they got hit pretty bad. I think, you know, they have over 450 patients that are COVID positive, over 120 that are intubated. And so seeing them and then having our main hospital be like a week or two behind them helped in sort of planning and they were able to sort of mobilize forces. And like I said, a lot of people within the general surgery department, which is a much larger department than any, any of our ENT departments, they had a lot of faculty that they could mobilize and help. And so I think that their day-to-day is just as affected. Most of my clinical work is still ENT focused, but for them, I think most of their clinical work is COVID focused. And so we've been lucky in that. The general surgery program director that I kind of joked about, she had said that, you know, maybe they'll need me next week. And so it seems like the more that people are exposed and are working and are turning either into COVID positive patients or symptomatic and person under investigation, that they're losing more of their reserves of their workforce and that we're going to be called. But I think that they're trying to do it in a very strategic way. So use us really at at the top of our skill set. And so for right now, the few ENTs that say at Hackensack that had been pulled were pulled to the COVID positive floors, but really for counseling families and to kind of have those difficult conversations about goals of care, which is within the realm of what we can do, obviously, with oncology patients and things like that, rather than like managing the vent. And so I think that they've been lucky in that way, that they've been able to mobilize a lot of intensivists and internal medicine, and surgical intensivists to the front lines and then use us in different ways. Yeah, maybe also for a break, because if they've been going, going, going for weeks, at some point, they're going to need a break too. Yeah, yeah but we're yeah. All, all hands are on deck in terms of we're all willing to help with the trauma service. We're trying to help more with the trachs because one of our institutions, they've done most of the trachs. And so we're offering to do that more help offload. I really appreciate your perspective and sharing with us. And I think it's really valuable to hear how people are managing and coping with this. We want to focus on what we have alike in each other and kind of really bring the community together and focus on kind of the overall long-term. That's the only yeah. way we're going to do this. I think is that we keep focusing on just our institution. It's comforting to hear that we have similar experiences all across because it's not just me, right? It's not just my program. It's not just my residence. It's also a little distressing. So it's, this was almost a therapy session for me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, right back at you. Yeah. And, and I have to say your description of your thoughts on your residents resonated with me. And I just, I think your residents are really lucky to have you is, is what I took away from that. 
All right. Well, thanks for being on the show, Evelyn. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hopefully we'll see each other at a conference soon. (laughs) Bye. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and healthy.